Good morning, church. Thank you for calling us up to the front and to pray over us. In the earlier service, they had done that also, and there was some nervous chatter with the boys because I had whispered in their ears that they'd have to sing and dance up here. Um, and in India, you get called to do random things like that, so they weren't sure. And then collectively, we were nervous because Lena is a very emotional person, and, and she barely gets through things without crying. And invariably, it's often when she comes to the point of talking about our marriage that she starts crying. <laughs> and so I was nervous. I had the mic ready that if she exploded, I would say, no, our marriage is fine. Everything is good. <laughs> it's good. It's been six years since we left. And it's uh, so good to see within both services that, that the communities that are coming to worship has spread. And there are people of different colors and ethnicities. But it's funny, I, I still see such a strong Indian DNA. Um, there's two brand new air conditioners, and yet it's often it's the fans that are blowing. <laughs> so you hold on to some things very tightly, I see. <clears throat> it was six years ago that we left. Um, it was in a passage of time has occurred for me to feel a bit nostalgic. Our youngest had not turned one yet on our final Sunday. It was a tearful, um, joyful, loving goodbye. And we're grateful that all these years later that you continue to pray with us, support us, and walk with us. So thank you for that. This morning, I have the privilege to give the Sunday morning message. And we continue in the series of Acts. And we are in chapter 8, and we're going to focus our attention on verses 1 through 25. And it's an interesting 25 verses because the beginning of the chapter begins with this horrendous, heart-wrenching situation with glorious, bold truth. And it ends with glorious, bold truth. And right in the middle is this like seemingly out-of-place, clownish aberration. There's a magician stuck in the middle of chapter 8 of what is otherwise a beautiful, unfolding story. And you almost feel like it's out of place, that it doesn't belong. And this clown, this magician, enters in chapter 8, verse 9, and makes a cowardly, embarrassing exit at verse 24, and you never hear about him again. So why does Luke write about him? It wouldn't be for lack of things, because the Christian faith is exploding. It's like an uncontrolled forest fire. And yet, Luke finds it important enough that he would devote half a chapter to this. And so since this clown has found his way into scriptures, we cannot ignore it or dismiss it, but we got to understand and take heed from it. And as you read the text, you draw out that there's this deep contrast between Simon and Philip. And there are these four points about the gospel that comes out. Philip lives out true gospel, while Simon runs counter to it. And these are the four points that I want to walk through today. One, true gospel will cause you to scatter. Two, true gospel will always point to Jesus. Three, True gospel often has a cost. And finally, true gospel brings joy. The chapter begins with this ominous line, and Saul approved of his execution. And as I read this, I think, what kind of a monster Saul was? Not an ounce of remorse, not a scent of sadness. And how can you deny with your eyes what you have seen? You didn't find this man Stephen hiding in a cave. Instead, you dragged him out and you had your men 
trump up false charges against him because you couldn't find anything on him. You bring him to the center of town and then you stone him to death. And in his final breath, what does he do? He asks for forgiveness on your behalf. Saul witnesses all of this, yet his heart is so hard, so passionately zealous to stamp out Christianity. And he approves of Stephen's execution. And with that, he unleashes the floodgates against the church. And before that, it was just the leaders of the Jewish people against the leaders of the church. But with, with this, the masses are enraged, and they're set against all those that follow Jesus. It becomes akin to like a mob violence. And if you've ever experienced something like that, you know that it, you're filled with fear because there's no parameters. There's no norms. It's just a frenzy where inhibitions are unleashed. India is a place where there exists this underlying tension between chaos and order, and it can float into mob violence easily. And once it does, there's really no control. I was once on the road when there was a, a national protest going on. A minority group had been unjustly treated, and now they were responding. And you see on the side an army of police units just watching on, looking and doing nothing because they're powerless. And I got out of my car and I walked a bit and there I saw auto rickshaws and trucks and cars with their windshields broken into a million pieces. And there were just angry youth that were just standing by with no compassion or pity but with just rocks in their hands, mindless of the fact that they were destroying the livelihood of these innocent people. Paul, with his consent, of Stephen's murder has unleashed mob violence. The unleashed are charging into homes and dragging fathers and mothers out. They're putting him to the prison and instantly creating orphans, children crying, screaming, confused. And Saul does it because he's on a mission to stamp out these Christians before it goes out of control. Before it gets out of control, he's going to stamp it out regardless of the cost. And like blood in the water, with Stephen's death, the sharks come out. But how could Saul know that not only would his plan not work, it would be the catalyst for the spread of faith throughout the world? So it brings me to my first point, God's people scatter. See, in this uncontrolled chaos, God's people scatter. Now, it's probably not the way the leaders of the, the faith at that time had planned. You see, Philip and Stephen were among the seven that were chosen to do more secular and charitable work. Meaning they were not in the front line of leadership. They were not the preachers. They were just followers of Jesus that served behind the scenes. But these servants end up playing a far more different role than, than what they had anticipated. Stephen has been stoned. Believers are dragged out of their homes. And Philip takes off. He leaves and where he goes becomes the unfolding of God's plan. He enters into a city that's comprised of an ethnic minority, a group that's at enmity with the Jews. They have major distrust, a disassociation. It's a place that was invaded by a foreign empire, the Assyrians, and now there's a lot of intermarriages going on, and the Jews now consider them a mixed breed. They consider them a bunch of outcasts, strange, less than the Jews. And the Samaritans, they were an odd bunch. They were susceptible to magic and magicians and sorcery. And into this place, Philip arrives. Now, if Philip was living for himself, if his endgame was on this side of eternity, you know what he would have done? He would have gone quietly. 
He would have stayed under the radar. He would have praised God. Thank you, Lord, for keeping me alive. And once in Samaria, he would have just remained quiet, living out the rest of his days. But because his end game is not here, because he's living for Christ, he doesn't do that. In fact, if he was living for himself, he would end up gone to Samaria. He would have gone to a place where his people are there, his culture is the same, the norms are his norms. But instead, he finds himself going into a group of outcasts and proclaiming the word of Christ and proclaiming it in word and deed. You know, a few days before I left for the States, I, had, I traveled to a state called Madhya Pradesh with my boss to see work that we're doing and hopefully where the next medical team will be serving. It's outside of two tiger reserves in this state. Nobody goes there because it's considered one of the poorest states in India. And it's got the largest group of scheduled tribes, a historically disadvantaged community. And so when, when we landed here, there we had to drive four hours to go where we were staying. It was hot. The car was small. There were six of us in it. And we're driving and driving. And three hours in, we stop in to see this home that we're building for the, the people we're serving. I thought it was fine. The others started looking at the cement and the bricks. And mind you, again, it was hot. We finally got home that evening to the place we were staying. And the next morning, we were setting out to go into the villages to really see who these people were. And I was grumbling all the while why I decided to come here when I was just coming to the States just a few days later. And before I left, I opened the Bible to Acts 8 again, and I read again, those, now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed them to Christ. I read it, closed my Bible, and we got into the car again, this time seven of us in the car. And I'm grumbling, and we're driving into the most irrelevant parts of India. And Devraj, my boss, turns around and says, Tom, which is my other name, different conversation, um, it's quite strange that we are driving here. And I was grumbling even more that I decided to go with him, and I just forced a smile. And while I'm grumbling, the, a lo our local leader in the car points to the seventh man that's in the car. And almost casually, he says, Gaurav here directs the work and is out in the villages all the time. He's the, the frontline guy. And then he casually says, he's been doing this since he was scattered. And suddenly, my grumbling turned to curiosity, and I started asking, and I came to find out that Gaurav had to flee his home state of Orissa some eight years ago. See, eight years ago, there was this great persecution against Christians in, in the villages in that state. And in fact, Gaurav's house was burned down, so was his brother's. The persecution caused beatings and torture against people of faith. So he had to run, but where he ran to was Madhya Pradesh. And then within Madhya Pradesh, the Lord led him to this people group called the Banchira community. And in this Banchira community, what happens is there are, it's an accepted practice for families to use their daughters for the flesh trade as early as 12 years old. And, it's, and in this community, it's okay, it's, it's actually favorable, unlike the rest of the country, to have a girl born into the family because she will be the breadwinner. And, and by the time she's 12, these horrific acts she has to do. 
And in this community, the female to male ratio is higher, unlike the rest of the country, but for the most perverse reasons. And if you have multiple daughters, you can decide to save one and, and marry her off, and you will receive a dowry instead of paying a dowry. And when, when Gaurav took us to these multiple villages, Devraj noticed that we were always on the outside. And he asked, why was that? And then the local leader said, because these are the Dalit people, the lower caste, they are not accepted into the village. They have to stay on the periphery. Here they were, the irrelevant of the irrelevant people group. And into these outcasts, Gaurav, the scouter, scattered one, is proclaiming the name of Jesus who's, to a people group whose morals have become so depraved that they would use their daughters as early as 12 for this horrific act. And he goes with the hope that when he proclaims the name of Jesus, that a lost people will come to know him, be rescued and redeemed. Romans 10 says, how, they will, they, how will they call on him of whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him of whom they have not heard? How will they hear unless someone is preaching? And how will someone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. The next day, we sat down with a husband and wife from this community. They have come to know the Lord, and now they're on staff. They're in their early 30s, and yet they have five girls and one boy. And in, like I said, in this community, you are considered wealthy if you have girls because they are the breadwinners. And you can, again, you can use one for marriage and receive dowry instead of paying for it. So before they had come to Christ, they had these children, and they decided that their second child, their daughter, that they were going to marry her off to another family. So, on the, so they received an advance on this girl in her first week of life. And then this man's brothers took out various loans and used his daughters as collateral. But when this husband and wife came to Christ, their hearts and minds changed. And they realized that they couldn't do this to their daughters anymore. But the problem was that they had all this debt that they owed. So he did the unthinkable in this community. He took his ancestral property and sold it. His neighbors thought he was mad that he had gone ridiculous. But he used that to pay off all his debts. And he tells us, he said, before Christ, I felt like I was a frog in a dark well, and that's all I could see around me. But when I came to Christ, I was taken out of that well, and I could see things the way that it was meant to be. See, what the enemy intended for destruction, what he sought was his domain. Who would ever go into this community so hot, so dry, so arid, so irrelevant? His haven for generation after generation would have been breached. And who would have thought that he intended to wipe out a state to, that knows Christ? Instead, people from that state were scattered, and then they came and they preached Jesus to people that were lost. And here's the point. It reaches beyond the Acts of the Apostle. This scattering reaches beyond the Acts of the Apostles. It reaches beyond Madhya Pradesh. And it comes and applies right here in Philadelphia. I don't think that the trigger, the catalyst has to be persecution. Instead, the very plan of God has been laid out in Acts 1. He says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And see, Jesus isn't telling us to necessarily go to Madhya Pradesh. Because Judea and Samaria were neighboring provinces of Jerusalem. But what he does ask of us 
requires us to get uncomfortable, to go into a community that may be so different from us, a culture that may not be the same, that may be strange and weird and there's no commonalities to have conversations, to people that are hurting, to see the invisible people, to love them, to be a part of their lives and to proclaim the name of Jesus. When I was in college, a pastor preached and said that Christians should be like manure. I've come to understand that more of what he was trying to say. See, in the ministry, we've started an agriculture initiative, and my colleague, Mark, heads it up. He's an agriculture engineer, and he's been doing a great job. He's created this whole ecosystem, and it's beautiful. We have mango orchards, and we have intensive farming where we grow something new every quarter, cabbage, okra, peppers, broccoli, tomatoes, all of it. And what he believes is the best way to grow this out is natural organic fertilizers. So we have a fish pond with over a thousand fish, and we take that wastewater and we spread it out. And then here's the good part. We have an elevated goat pen where we have over 40 goats, and all that droppings, the goat droppings, come down. I get excited just thinking about this, right? <laughs> And then, and then we've got all these chickens that live below the elevated goat pen, and their job, they peck at these droppings and break it down, and then they add their droppings to it. There are days when I look at it with Mark, and I say, man, we got some good manure. <laughs> Though inappropriate, it's funnier when you use the other word. Uh, but the, the point is, this manure is not beautiful in its present stage. It actually stinks to high heaven. But what makes it beautiful is when we take that out and we spread it. And when we spread it across the fields, we get a yield so great that we can feed our women and children and then be able to sell it outside. Here's what I'm trying to say, Seven Mile Road Church. If your faith is constricted to these walls, sooner or later it's going to start to stink. But if your faith is spread into communities that are hurting, that are left out, that don't know Jesus, then it will be beautiful, it will be glorious, and it will have a heavenly fragrance. How then will they call on him if they have not believed? How will they believe if they have not heard? How will they hear if someone has not preached? How will someone preach if they have not been sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. If you go to verse 6 and 9, it says, Philip scattered and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the, and the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs he did. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic, magic and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was great. The second point, true gospel always points people to Jesus. Both Philip and Simon gathered crowds, but Philip pointed them to Jesus, and Simon pointed them to himself. Simon brought entertainment. Philip brought truth. Simon, for a long time, had captured the crowd with his magic, his tricks, his gimmicks. If you've ever seen the movie The Greatest Showman, it was something like that. The rich and the poor, the, the powerful and the nobodies, all under one tent, just there to be mesmerized to be entertained by the trapeze artist and the disappearing Bonnie, the bearded lady singing. You add in fireworks and illusions and you have yourself a show. And you sell out 
night after night holding the people's attention and like a ringmaster you go out there and you receive all the adulation, the applause, the ovations, all of that falls on you and the great prophets. For Simon, all signs and wonders ended up at himself. It didn't point to anything greater, nothing more majestic. Philip comes into town and it makes it all look like child's play. He comes in and it's altogether different. He comes into town and the unclean spirits come crying out and then the lame and the paralyzed are healed. And when I, when I read this, I remember Mark 2. Jesus comes into town, into Capernaum. The house is packed. There's no room. And the news comes to a paralyzed man and his four friends and they got to get to Jesus. So they put him on a bed, get to the house, come down through the roof and they meet Jesus face to face. And Jesus looks at them, loves them, and says, Take heart, my son. Take heart, my son. Your sins are forgiven. Philip comes to the Samaria and the crowds, and with one accord, they're paying attention to what he's being said. And you know that later in the story of Mark, Jesus does heal the paralyzed man, but there was a higher priority. Jesus, more concerned than dead bones, is concerned after a dead soul, and he breathes life into a dead soul. And I can only imagine... That Philip comes to them and preaches, brothers and sisters, I come to you in the name of Jesus Christ. And as, and as his brother Stephen must have addressed the crowds, he must have possibly addressed the crowds. And he, said, and he must have called it out from the old, from the time of Abraham, from Moses to Joseph. And then to say, Jesus, the son of God, God himself, has come down because his creation was held captive. And he became the sacrifice that all the lambs in Israel could not satisfy. He took our sins and paid the penalty on the cross. And he was wrapped in linen and put in a cave. And a big stone was rolled over and Roman soldiers held guard on it. Yet, three days later, he performed what Simon on his best day could never. He left the linen behind, rolled the cave out, and walked out. He defeated death. And Philip tells these outcasts, these backward Dalits, the Samaritans, that in Jesus... You are free from your captivity. In Jesus, there's no Jew and Samaritan. You are all one under him. And the Samaritans rejoice in that. Philip points to the crowds, to Jesus. His own life, his own fame, his own fortune means nothing. He's living out what Saul, the executioner, would one day say, for me to live is Christ and die is gain. Beware of these charlatans, the ones that gather crowds with only wonders and illusions, but that don't point people to the cross. And then you know what else you need to do? You have to watch out for yourselves. The, the gospel doesn't just live and die with your good deeds. It means nothing if Lena and I go to Bombay and just show people kindness and generosity if we do not proclaim the name of Jesus. It's meaningless. Because whether we intend to or not, we become our own gods, and all that praise falls on us. This is Luke's warning to you, wherever you are, whatever you do, that you're pointing people to the cross, pointing people to Jesus, the one that has defied death and has freed your souls. We must decrease, and he must increase. And to some extent, our lives must be expendable for Jesus. We hold on to these things in this world so loosely, and with the gospel, we hold it with fear and awe, never getting comfortable, never getting casual with it. Verse 3, when you go back, it says, Paul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. 
He dragged off men and women, committed them to prison. Here's a third point. True gospel often comes at a cost. Following Jesus is not necessarily easy. There's no promise of an easy or prosperous life. You go through pain and suffering, you will not be able to escape any of that. And, and when you first read this account in, in Acts 8, you almost want to say, of course they believed. Philip brought in all these deeds, these, these acts. But here's the thing, Simon the sorcerer did also. It's only when Philip spoke of Jesus that a whole city turned. There's a lady at my church in Mumbai who's in her early 30s, and she shared her story of coming to Christ and the cost that she had to pay for that. She was born into a wealthy family in Mumbai, a business family. And there it's wealth and prestige that held priority for them more than anything else. And in fact, she was the darling of her father. More than her brothers, the father saw the potential in her and gave her the task and responsibilities of the business. And in fact, thought that she would be heir to the business, unlike the culture where the boy would normally get the business. But as rich as they were, their, her mother had become ill and sick, and all the doctors and treatments, none of it could heal her. And this weighed heavily on her because of her great love for her parents. One day, a college friend said, come to church, Jesus can heal your mother. And she said, I want nothing to do with your Western religion. I am happy with my religion and my God. But the friend insisted, saying, Jesus can heal your mom. And because of her love for her mom, and just only because he, she wanted healing for her, she went to this church. And as strange as it was for her, she kept hearing about this Jesus, and it kept her coming back. And in fact, her mom did get healed. But by that time, she had drawn to something far greater. She came to know Jesus, and she committed her life to Christ. But when she did that, she went from being the darling of the house to the shame of the house. They locked her up in her room. They took away her Bible. Her brothers and her father started beating her, threatening her, telling her that because of her, her mom would die. And she had a choice to make, and she chose Jesus. And through a story that's too long to explain, at some point she had to run away and sever ties with her family. What does it look for us here in Philadelphia? Maybe not so extreme, but in your own way, you're going to have to endure Christ, the cost when following Christ. Philip has not come to Samaria on a planned visit or a speaking engagement. He's had to scatter, and because of a great persecution, there's a bounty on his head. He's had to count the cost, and he has decided that his life will be expendable for Jesus. Jim Elliot said he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Simon the magician wants a faith that's altogether different. He sees what Philip does, ignores what he hears, and he follows with fascination. And he, and he wants to be a part of a good thing, to be part of a, a great ride. He sees that the miracles that, that Philip does, and he's captivated. And then he sees Peter and John come, and he sees the impartation of the Holy Spirit. And he is all in. And what does he do like a fool? He goes to them and, and says, hey, I'll pay you some money. Can you give me some of this Holy Spirit? You know, if they, had a, they have the message Bible that translates ESV and KJV into more common language. I feel like if they had a more common edition, like a Philly edition, you would see that the, the response of Peter would probably be like, you punk, 
You take your cash and go to hell. You don't get it. You have no idea. You can't run with us because you don't know what this is about. Don't you know that my brother Philip, who has come to you and your people, has had to pay a great cost for that? He's had to leave his home and his loved ones for the, the faith that you're trying to pimp? Or do you not know about my brother Stephen, who was taken into town, the center, and, and, and stoned like a mad dog for the faith that you're trying to profit from? And do you not know about the author of this faith, who was perfect, and yet he came down and suffered the death that you and I deserved, and this is what you're trying to profit from? Man, you are full of poison. Peter can't be gentle about this. He can't ignore this. He can't afford for the gospel to get off tracks. And we have to guard this gospel ourselves. But before we look to find a Simon, we need to examine ourselves. We've got to examine our hearts. Are we living a faith that's without any cost? Or do we think that it will exempt us from suffering? It won't. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a Christian in the time of uh, World War II, and he resisted Hitler. And he made it all the way to the end until he was caught right before the war ended, and he was killed. And he wrote this book, The Cost of Discipleship. And in it, he writes, the cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ suffering which every man must experience is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. When a Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. It may be a death like that of the first disciples who had to leave home and work to follow him. Or it may be like Luther who had to leave the monastery and join the world. But it's the same death every time. Death in Jesus Christ, the death of the old man at his call. See, I don't know what the cost will be for each of you, but I know in some way there will be. Because following Jesus means that you are at odds with the values and virtues of this world. Jesus says it, Luke 14, you've got to be willing to hate your father and mother, your wife, your sisters, your brothers, your children, even yourselves, if you're going to follow me. So what does that cost mean? Maybe everything in regards to your relationships or your physical life. But the truth is there's no opting out. There's no opting out. My friend Savita did not have the option to say, oh, Jesus, I will follow you this much, but I can't go there because my relationship with my parents was severed. Whatever it is, our lives must be expendable to Jesus. Your resources may remain with you, but only as managers that are stewarding his resources. And Jesus calls this for all of us. So if God has called you to be a banker, be faithful. If God has called you into a medical line, be faithful. If he's called you to be a teacher or a pastor, be faithful. But know that if you're serving, there will be a cost. But also know that Jesus promised that he will repay you thousandfold at resurrection. So we've seen so far that the gospel calls you to scatter. It calls you to point to Jesus alone. It comes with a cost. And finally, the true gospel brings great joy. Verse 13 says, All this time the people of Samaria had been amazed by the signs and wonders of Simon. But when Philip came and brought the gospel to the people of Samaria, they went from being amazed to being filled with joy. And throughout the Bible, you will find verses where there is joy in the midst of fear or trouble. Joy is characteristic of God's people. In the dead of the night, these irrelevant shepherds are tending their sheep, and an army of angels comes before them. What do they say? Fear not, I bring good news of great joy. In Matthew 28, Mary and 
Magdalene and the other Mary run to an empty tomb, find an angel, and the angel says, the Lord has risen, go and tell the others. And what do they do? With great fear and joy they go. And Saul, the one that was a great enemy of Jesus, finally becomes the one that writes of him and writes Philippians, and it's filled with, with just joy bleeding from it. Despite the hardships, the troubles, the imprisonment, the loneliness, you see that his strength is Jesus, and he re- learns to rejoice in the Lord. So when we find ourselves in the dark nights, and our soul, whether it's the illness of our uh, illness or loss of job or loved one, loss of a loved one, his presence gives us the strength to take the next step. On those days when we don't know we have the strength to take the next breath, he stands beside us and grants us that strength. The joy of the Lord is knowing that Paul tells us that all the sufferings of the world are nothing compared to the glory that is to come. The joy of the Lord is knowing that every tear and shed has been counted and has purpose. Is knowing that you are hemmed in by the love of God. Joy of the Lord is not this bubbly feeling. It's the confidence in knowing that we will not be swept away by the terrors because we belong to him. He holds us. In the darkness of the night, the shepherds are filled with joy because God is there. And that truth becomes our greatest and only motivation to do anything and everything we do. See, Jesus did all of this for us, and we're just imitating him. He saw a lost people, his creation, the outcast, and he came to us Dalits. He considered the cost. He pointed us to true righteousness himself. He went on the cross, and as Hebrews 12 says, I could say it again and again, for the joy set before him, for the joy set before him, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross and scorned the shame. Brothers and sisters, our joy comes when we don't fix our eyes on things of this world, but we set our hearts on the eternal. So as we leave this church today, know that we are getting scattered into the city of Philadelphia, into the places where the Lord has called us. And we are to point people to Christ. We are to consider the cost and to know that the joy of the Lord is our strength. God bless you. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for this church, and I thank you that you are in our midst, Father. I thank you, Lord, that we could be expendable for you, Father. And I thank you for eternity that waits for us because of you and you alone, Lord. Lord, be with your children, Father. Give them a taste of eternity. Help them to set their eyes on on what it will be like with you forever. And so let them know they are just exiles. Help us to remind us we are just exiles in this land, Father. So we hold on to things loosely and we hold on to you tightly. In your precious name we pray. Amen.